boost your mood in New Jersey. Surprise yourself with new wonders. Stroll beaches and boardwalks. Discover places to dine and catch up with friends. See inspiring art, culture, and history, too. Savor sea breezes and explore all the treasures nature has waiting for you. Rise to the call of adventure or catch a wave into the ocean blue. Find it all at visitnj.org. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network. Broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All-Hit Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. My guest this hour is a gentleman we've had the pleasure of having on the show before. His name is Dennis Stone. And Dennis grew up at America Stonehenge and has been involved with the site for the last 55 years and has met a variety of researchers. Also a full-time airline captain, Dennis has traveled extensively around the world to other sites in Europe and North America. He has been on numerous television and radio shows since 1970. When he's not flying, Dennis spends his time at America Stonehenge, where his wife Pat manages the day-to-day operations of the site. Their son Kelsey, who is an engineer, has taken an interest in ongoing research. The website is www.stonehengeusa.com. And Dennis, welcome back to the Exxon. No, thank you so much, Rob, for having me on this evening. I'm happy to be back. Uh, for our listeners who were not with us the last time you joined us, going back to September of last year, Tell us about America Stonehenge. Well, America Stonehenge is a, um, a complex of stone structures located in uh, southern New Hampshire, and it's been an um, ongoing uh, project uh, with my family. As you mentioned, about 55 years, the uh, research actually began back in the 1930s, and the questions are who built these stone structures, where did they, people come from, um, you know, what, hap- what happened to them, um, and there's about 800 sites uh, located in the northeast, uh, going actually from Canada down to the mid-Atlantic states. And the site has some resemblance to some of these structures. So one of the questions, are uh, these other sites related to our site? But it is a mystery as to who built it. Um, we have done quite a few different carbon datings on the site, about mm-hmm. 12 of them, starting in 1966. And we believe at this time from that and also from the astronomical data, we surveyed the site during the 1970s. We hired a professional survey team, and the results of that survey were sent to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1977. And we had to wait a while for the results. In 1978, they sent us the information 
uh, the results of that, and they said that the uh, stone markers, if they worked for astronomical purposes, would work about 1800 B.C., which is the same age as the oldest radiocarbon dating, which we took in 1971 at the main site. Mm. And we think the site might be a religious site, not a place where people lived. So it's more of a uh, spiritual place. It's on top of a hill. It's about 110 acres. And um, there's all different types of chambers. There's uh, stone plazas, courtyards, um, and there's a stone ramp that kind of overlooks what we call the sacrificial table. Um, And there's underground drain network. But they're all dry stone construction. No uh, cement was used to actually create these stone structures. I'm sure over the years you've had many professional and amateur archaeologists to come down and uh, take a look at your site. What are some of the theories and hypotheses that, that these these archaeologists have come up with? Yeah, there's actually, uh, everybody seems to have an opinion, but um, the three main um, theories are that it was built during a historic period in mm-hmm. the last 300 years by early settlers, and it was actually a family that bought part of the property in as early as uh, 1734, the Patty family. And some people believe they might have built the site. Um, we have evidence suggesting that it's a much, much older site than that. The other two theories are it's Native American, and we know Native Americans are all around this area. And they do go back in New Hampshire to more than 10,000 years ago. There's a paleo site up in northern New Hampshire that the New Hampshire Archaeological Society has been working on for a couple of years. And so we know people were in New Hampshire over 10,000 years ago. It's surprising they were that far north in New Hampshire in the higher elevations of the White Mountains because uh, the glacial period had just, you know, was just receding. Mm-hmm. It's still very, very difficult uh, climate conditions, but they were here. Uh, and the third one is that it's an old world, um, you know, visitation by explorers coming across the Atlantic Ocean. And our site does have uh, some very similar structures to some of the megalithic sites in Europe. And I'm, I'm sure most of you li- listeners are aware of Stonehenge. Oh, sure, I think yeah. everybody in the world has heard of Stonehenge. But when I grew up, I only thought Stonehenge uh, was a single site. But there's about 50,000 megalithic sites in Western Europe. And they come in different sizes, shapes, and designs. And ours uh, actually looks a lot like some of the other me- megalithic sites in Western Europe. So would it be safe to say that history as we know it may need a bit of fine-tuning with all these new sites that are being discovered? Exactly, yeah. We think they may have to rewrite the uh, uh, at least a chapter in the history books of uh, people coming over. We know the Vikings made it into Canada, yep. and that was proven in 1960 at Lonzo Meadow. And before that, 1959, before that, was more of a theory. There was a lot of arguing going on, uh, a lot of people speculating whether the Vikings actually made it to the New World. And in 1960, uh, they actually proved it. And I think last year, they just found another site up in Newfoundland. And I'm not sure what the final answer on that, but they seem to think that was another um, Viking settlement yeah. in Point Rosie, and, um, I, and, I, and the last time I heard, it was, a, it was a special on, I think it was PBS, and they, they at that time believed it was a Viking settlement, and then I heard after that there's still uh, some arguing going on on that. Dennis, stand by, my friend. We've got to take a break. Dennis and I sure. will be back on the other side as we continue talking about America's Stonehenge. Don't go away. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. 
I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Hello, I'm Pete Marsh. With my daughter Justina, we will be presenting the new radio show, Too Good to Be True. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. But with the help of Justina's amazing gifts, we're going to gain insight into questions that don't yet have complete answers. Have you wondered who built Stonehenge and for what reason? Why are crop circles found in the same region as Stonehenge and elsewhere? Are crop circles a hoax or are they created with technologies that we have little knowledge of? Who built the pyramids in Egypt and also in other countries? How and why were they built? Was the Titanic switched with the Britannic as part of a gigantic insurance fraud or for more insidious reasons? What caused the Tunguska event when trees were flattened over an 800 square mile area in Siberia? Will the new insights be too good to be true? Well, that will depend on what you are prepared to believe. Please join us as we start on this journey together. For more information on Too Good To Be True, visit www.xzbn.net. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at Songs and Stories for Soul. Soldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. Dennis Stone is my special guest, Exxon Nation. We're talking about America's Stonehenge, and if you'd like to find out more about this site, visit them online at www.stonehengeusa.com. What, if any, are the similarities to other sites that are around the world? Are you on the same line of longitude or latitude? Um, has, has there been any geographic comparisons made? Uh, yes, uh, and then some of that happened in the 1970s. A couple of researchers that are no longer with us uh, were really looking at uh, latitude was one thing, and Cape Finisterre, and I believe Cape Finisterre in Spain. I'm, I'm going to say Portugal, but it, I think it's in Spain. Um, I could be wrong on that, but it's the same latitude as a number of megalithic sites, and I think it's on the Douro River, um, and it's the same, same latitude. And I know one of our researchers did some study on that and what type of structures there were there in Spain and how they look similar to the ones at our site. But the the other thing is um, our some of the astronomical alignments at our place, uh, and it could be a coincidence, but um, the winter solstice sunrise alignment, if you continue that alignment from the central viewing area across the stone where the sun rises uh, on June 20th or 21st in the morning, if you were had Superman vision, actually that line goes across, uh, grows across uh, New England, Canada, and then it goes right across the Atlantic Ocean, 3,200 miles, and that alignment goes right through the center of Stonehenge, the largest trilothon. Wow. And, and that was pretty, that's something my, my son Kelsey had found about five years ago by g- using Google Earth. And he was just, you know, playing around with Google Earth, and he was looking to see if other New England sites aligned with our site, was something, again, that people mm-hmm. were looking at in the 1970s before Google Earth. And it made it much more difficult back then because you had to kind of go out on these avenues and actually walk, you know, walk some of these hills, you know, and see if there is any alignment, you know, and use maps and everything. It was very, very uh, uh, cumbersome-like, you know, to do that. But with Google Earth, it's, you know, made it a lot easier. Um, and after that, we found, like, the south alignment does go through a, 
um, an effigy mound in North Andover, Massachusetts, about 15 miles, 20 miles south of here. It looks like a great big turtle if you were above it looking down, all made out of rock, and nobody knows who built it, how old it is, you know, what culture built it. Um, but this alignment goes right through there, and if you continue south on that, it actually goes right uh, through Machu Picchu in, in, in Peru. It's on that south alignment. Um, a winter solstice sunset goes through the moon pyramid at Tiwatiwakan, and the um, and the uh, uh, equinox sunset goes through Chaco Canyon. Opposite that, on the equinox sunrise, it goes to the uh, Canary Islands where the pyramids are, which most people, including myself, I wasn't even aware they had pyramids there until a few years ago, but it goes right through the center of that. And some people believe this has to do with um, sacred geometry, um, you know, these power points of the earth, uh, ley lines, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I don't know what, I, I myself don't know. I think it's very interesting, and I suppose you can only have so many coincidences, but uh, when we saw that five years ago, and my son first did that, I make the hairs on your back stand up, and then I became a part of a History Channel show, you know, uh, with Scott Walters, which is about four, I guess the show came out four years ago. Are there any energy vortexes or high areas of energy on your uh, America's Stonehenge? There seems to be. It's, uh, we have a lot of quartz, and we have no, not only quartz, but we have quartz crystals, and mm-hmm. the quartz crystals are found... Uh, in a upper well, there's two wells at the site, an upper well, which is about 23 feet deep, and then a lower well, which has never been fully explored because it fills up with water. That's the problem, the water. You know, every time they get down about 18 or 20 feet, it filled in with water. So they so they have to get a pump in there and see how far down that well goes. But in 1963, my dad uh, continued an excavation. Somebody in 1960 had started, and he got to the very bottom of it. He hit bedrock, and he went through... Uh, what happened is they, whoever it was that built the well actually dug through bedrock. They quarried out the bedrock down another few feet. And it looks like they're following a vein of quartz crystal. And we have some of these on uh, display in our theater, uh, in our museum, actually. How and did... we have an earthquake fault line that goes right through the center. Of the, uh, uh, the entire hill is bisected by part of the Clinton-Newbury fault line, which is off the coast of New England. It goes right through the center of our site. How did your family um, <laughs> end up with America's Stonehenge? Yeah, actually, uh, it was 1955. My dad um, was an engineer at AT&T, and he had been there just a couple of years, and he had been up in Canada uh, with the Coast Guard for a few years before that. And, it, and he was always interested in history, the Vikings, Columbus, Native mm-hmm. Americans. And if he had only known that uh, the Vikings had landed at Lonzo Meadow, he was right up in that area. He could have visited it, but it was about, he left here in 53, so it was about seven years later that was discovered. But he was actually listening to a radio show on a Friday night, and it was uh, one of the large uh, AM stations in Boston, which is still they're having their 80th anniversary, I think, this year. And it was a show called uh, Yankee Yarns, and the talk show host was Alton Hall Blackington. And this particular night, they're talking all about these strange stone ruins uh, in North Seal, New Hampshire, where we're located. And my dad was only about eight miles away and had never heard of this place. So that really got his attention and his interest. And coincidentally, uh, a couple of days later, he's at a barber shop waiting to have his hair done, and it was a New Hampshire Profile magazine. It was a three-year-old magazine from 1952, so this is 1955. He's looking at it, and it's a whole story again about the same site he had wow. heard on the radio, and he's like, "Wow, you know." And he asked the barber if he could take the uh, magazine since since it was three years old. He said, "Sure, take it." And at a card game at my aunt and uncle's, a lot of friends got together on Saturday night. Uh, during the game, my dad put it on the table and said, anybody ever hear of this place? And people looking at it, and finally my aunt and uncle looked at it and said, oh, we used to go there, I think, 20 years ago in the 1930s. Uh, my dad goes, do you know where it is? And they said, I think we can find it. So the next morning, Sunday, they all came down here, and my dad uh, climbed under the fence. Kind of everybody trespassed, and they got under the fence, and my dad... Uh, you know, he basically fell in love with the place, and then uh, he opened the place up on the summer solstice of 1958, three years later. That's a, that is one heck of a great story. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the sacrificial table that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's a very large feature. It's bell-shaped. It weighs about 9,000 pounds. It has a uh, kind of, looks like a rectangular groove on the surface of it. But as we found out last year, by measuring it very carefully after waiting 60 years, I know other people have looked at it and maybe may have measured it, mm-hmm. but it's actually a trapezoid shape. And it has a little runnel at the front of it, and down by the front right leg, it has four legs, stone legs. The front right leg, um, it has a cutout in the bedrock, which could hold like a vase perhaps, some sort of a vessel, even stone or 
ceramic, you know. So when uh, water gets on it from, like, rainwater mm-hmm. or if somebody had perhaps a sacrifice or something like that, the fluid will run along that whole groove, and then it goes to the front of the table off that runnel, and then it will drip into that cutout in the bedrock. And, of course, if you had a, some sort of a vase there, it would actually collect that. Um, but it's kind of bell-shaped, and uh, it is connected to the oracle chamber, the largest structure still remaining on the site. And that chamber is uh, connected by an a uh, horizontal tube called the oracle tube. It's about six feet long, and it's about one foot by one foot approximately. And if you're inside the oracle chamber, there's actually a step below it. So you can stand on this pot of the bedrock. They, whoever quarried and built the site, they left this pot exposed. They didn't touch it. It's a step up, and then you get face somebody about five and a half feet tall could yell into this tube. The voice comes out underneath the sacrificial table. It still works today. And opposite the table is a ramp, almost like a viewing area where people could stand and look down at the table. And there is a couple in Europe. There's one in Spain that uh, one of our researchers in the 60s uh, saw on a tour over there. And it's very similar to our table, except it's maple leaf shape, and it has the same kind of groove on it. And over there, they don't really know what it was used for, but the thought at the time in the 1960s was that it was used for ceremonial sacrificial purposes. It looks very, very similar to our table. Hmm. Now, you yourself have gone all over the world to other megalithic sites. Hmm. How many of the sites have you visited personally that you can say resemble the site that you have back home in the U.S.? Um, Well, uh, quite a few. I don't actually have a number, but we do have a structure called the V-Hut. It's called the V like the letter V. Mm -hmm. It looks like that if you look down at it. And um, we always wondered why the structure is not orientated with the rest of the site. The rest of the site, the walls are true north and south, true east and west. Uh, but this one's odd. It kind of faces the winter solstice sunset direction. And um, it just doesn't align with the other structures. When my, when my dad and I visited Ireland back in 1983, we intentionally looked for some chambers over there called wedge tombs. And they are kind of shaped like a V. And one of the things about the wedge tombs was the size, the shape, and they're orientated, their orientation out of True North. And the ones over there, the ones that we saw, mm-hmm. and Ireland has over 2,000 megalithic sites. Wow. And they have quite a few uh, wedge tombs. So the ones we saw, a couple were missing the roofs, but a couple had the roofs because people would recycle them and damage them and start tearing them apart, you know, in later years. But um, they face southwest, just like our V-Hut. Um, these wedge tombs are also in Spain, and they have a different name for them. Um, they, it's a Spanish word they use for it. Next to the V-Hut is a chamber we call the uh, Tomb of Lost Souls. Uh, that's what we used to call it. It's called the East-West Chamber because it's orientated east and west. And it does look like the gal- galley graves that are found over in Holland, and they have a Dutch name I can't pronounce. They're also in Northwest Ireland, and they're in, uh, also in France, which I did visit in France back in 1984. We've been there since then, but I didn't get a chance to revisit them. But they're always orientated true east and west, about 20 to 60 feet in length, and they were used as tombs. And the uh, our east-west chamber looks so much like those. They have uh, vertical slabs. They're called orthostats. And... Um, and I always have those stones on the front front of the structure. They look so, so similar. But the orientation and the size and the shape are very, very similar. And one other chamber we have called the uh, self-facing chamber, it looks like the Fugus of Ireland. Not all of them, because they cut do vary in size and shape. But we have a couple in Ireland, and I think one in County Meath, Ireland, that looks just like our, our structure we call the self-facing chamber. Uh, so megalithic sites, but they continue. You know, they're Western Europe, 50,000, but they go into Russia, India, China. And the Korean Peninsula has about 100,000. I think today about 80,000 remain. They had over 100,000 at one time. Um, so they're, on, uh, they're in Africa, too. And recently I found out that they're in Australia. If you Google Australia Stonehenge, there's a really neat site. It's sort of new to the public. I just became aware of it last fall. And one in Am- um, South America called Amazon Stonehenge. It's in French New Guinea right on the Brazil border. And that's pretty amazing. So six out of seven continents seem to have these megalithic or huge stone structures. And there is a resemblance between them. Like dolmens, as you mentioned earlier, those seem to be a worldwide kind of phenomenon. It, uh, it seems very ironic based on the findings that the history, as we know it, is right. You know, something's wrong somewhere. And, uh, you know, if you go to a school today and... Ask any young child who discovered the Americas, they'll say Christopher Columbus, even though we know mm. it's not true, and the books have never been changed in the name of academia. So, what do you think the significance of 
you know, of science or academia coming up and saying, you know what, we were wrong. We were wrong about who discovered America and who was here first. Would that really change the impact? Would there, in your opinion, be any significant impact on why it should not be corrected? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I know in schools I've talked to a lot of teachers. They're not even really emphasizing history, you know, hmm. that much anymore. And we have the Common Core and everything in the United States, good or bad. But teach, some of the teachers don't like that. Um, we've lost a lot of our – we used to have over almost 8,000 students a year. But between bus cost and their, and their curriculums, they're not really doing much with history as much anymore. We still get a few thousand students, and we love uh, having them here. And we've been doing it since 1958. But – uh, they don't seem to emphasize that, and, it's, and, that, and you're, you're right. They really don't change the uh, the history books. Yeah. And Columbus seems to be the guy that discovered America, even though Leif Erikson had seen it 500 years before that. There's some evidence that Portuguese sailors came over here. Uh, uh, Basque fishermen came over, you know, particularly up into the Grand Banks of Canada. Yeah. And there's some DNA evidence. Uh, there's other types of evidence, linguistic evidence. Uh, there's tools. There's these megalithic-type sites all over the, uh, like I say, all over the Northeast that seem to be a piece of evidence also. We have recently found a number of do, uh, new things at the site. Just all right, let's, let's have a little bit of a cliffhanger because I have to take my news break. Exonation, Dennis Stone is our special guest. We're talking about America Stonehenge. The website is StonehengeUSA.com. And Dennis and I will be back talking about new discoveries here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. are our personal gateways into infinite wisdom. Don't miss Shamanic Counselor and Indigenously Trained Dream Decoder Sandra Corcoran's inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles Sandra's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers and her initiations throughout the Americas and across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt. Sandy's knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth influenced her dream blog and workshops. Sandy offers private tarot readings, international journeys, a meditative CD, as well as her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate this earthwalk, creating a deeper connection to yourself and all that is. Find this and more at Sandy's website, starwalkervisions.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Nemology science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Nemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today, Know the Name, Know the Person, or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. 
Hello, I'm Justina Marsh, and with my dad, Pete, we are going to present a new show called Too Good to Be True. Together, we are aiming to discover more truths about this world and beyond. Do you have unanswered questions about the world? Do you ever wonder about aliens, conspiracy theories, or the universe? There are many shows discussing subjects such as pyramids or UFOs, but we want to relay this information based on our own research, including from spiritual means. Hopefully, listeners will be helped with their own beliefs and will appreciate the psychic insights that add to the previous research and information. We both look forward to sharing this insight and beginning this journey with our listeners. Visit xzbn.net for more information about when to listen. Explanation. Dennis Stone is our guest. We're talking about America Stonehenge. And Dennis, uh, before we went to the break, you were telling us about some, or you were going to tell us about some new discoveries that had been made. Uh, yes, Rob. Yeah, actually, uh, we in the last couple of years, we keep finding new things at this site, which is uh, kind of a you know, surprise to us, and we're very, very happy about it. Uh, and we are using different technologies today to help us do this. But um, some of these things that we've been walking by for, you know, since I, I first came here when I was about a year old in 1955. Now, I guess I'm dating myself, but um, these walls have been seen by us for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these walls are actually serpent in shape, serpentine. And we found about nine of them in the last, um, about a year and a half, actually. And um, one day I was just going by one of the walls out on the way to where my dad actually lived in the north alignment, uh, he died seven years ago, and I used to go over that way, and I went by this wall all the time on ATV or snowmobile, just walked by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, last year in the spring, I decided to get off, off the machine and go over there and take a look. It looked a little unusual, and as I looked at it, I, it, it seemed to have a head, and it ran about 30 feet and then has this big oval like tail thing to it. And then in front of the head, there's like this big tongue on the ground. And I said, geez, this thing, it just starts and stops in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't attach itself to any of the walls. It's this there, and it's on a ridge of bedrock. It's right on the edge of a bedrock. And um, I, I showed it to a number of people, and there was some interest in it. And like, wow, that could be something. But after that, we found about eight more. And some of them, that one's straight. It's linear. Some of them are actually curved. By fall, we had gone to a meeting, the New England Antiquities Research Association, a nonprofit group my dad started in 64. They're having, they just had their 50th anniversary two years ago. Well, this last fall, we were at a meeting, and they had a guest speaker from the um, Woodstock Monticello part of New York, uh, probably about 40 miles from New York City. And he was showing these serpentine walls down in that area. And I'm like, wow, those look, you know, very, very similar to what we have, you know, up in New Hampshire. And he was showing carns. He was showing dolmens. He was showing standing stones, uh, stone chambers, like some of the ones at our site. But then he got into the serpentine wall thing. And, you know, I was like, my God, we just, he's just finding these. And we're just realizing we have a few. Uh, there was a book for sale, and it was about a place called Stonington, Connecticut, and it's down near Mystic, near Groton, Connecticut, near the Navy base and the Coast Guard Academy in New London, where my dad actually went to school. Um, but anyway, in that town, there's 8,000 features. And uh, these 8,000 features, we believe, are his, uh, prehistoric. There are cons, there are uh, standing stones, there's chambers. But there's 400 serpentine walls in that one town that they've mapped. And some of these are 100 feet long, some are 200 feet long, and they have gigantic boulders for heads that you can actually see like eye. Uh, you can see, like, the mouth hmm. in some cases. Uh, some are, I think most of them are linear. They're kind of straight. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple curvilinear ones, and some are rectilinear with actually a 90-degree turn. And you're looking at them going, these look like what we have at our site. And some of the walls down there have windows. They're actually like stone windows, probably like two feet by a foot high. And there might be another smaller one next to it, like half that size, and right along the bedrock in the wall, intentionally built in this, you know, rectangular in shape. They have a lintel stone. And uh, just about three weeks ago, on one of the walls that we believe is a, uh, it's 100 feet long, which is a lot of them in Connecticut are, uh, many of the 400 uh, serpentine walls are about 100 feet long. And um, ours has a, they have a lot of triangular kind of 
heads. So the boulder's a triangular shape, or smaller stones are triangular shaped, or actually stack stones up in that kind of fashion. But they have windows in some of these serpent walls also, and we have it at our site. So uh, we got some really nice photographs of these. And this wall that I'm mentioning is in front of what we call the watch house. It's a re- satellite structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it is actually an astronomically aligned structure with November 1st, one of the cross-quarter days. But the watch house is the first thing you see at America Stonehenge when you walk up the trail. And we've been right across from it is that wall that I'm gonna, we've been referring to it in the last two weeks is the most ignored wall on the whole property of 110 acres. No, it's right in front of us. We've been going by it for over 60 years, and we never even gave it a, a second look. It was so covered with brush and debris, but it's got standing stones in it. It's got great big quarried hmm. stones in it, kind of rectangular shape. Uh, it has that triangular head. It has two stone windows. And the back of it kind of goes up and down, undulates kind of like a snake. So I think that's another serpentine wall. And at this meeting we went to uh, a week ago, at the, near, the spring meeting, there was a lady from uh, Colorado. And out in Colorado they have cairns, they have standing stones, and they have chambers. In Colorado, which I had never even heard of, I've heard of some of the petroglyphs out there, but not the chambers. And she shows serpentine walls, and there's one that looks almost exactly like that one I was just mentioning, the last one we found the same. Wow. The head looks exactly the same, 2,000 miles away. And they're in Kentucky, and they're also in Pennsylvania, and the guy showed us some in Rhode Island. So I think it's part of a very spread out kind of um, a serpent worship. And you know the you know the serp, Great Serpent Mound in Ohio? Yes. I thought that was the only one. I don't know if you've heard of others beside that. Yes, Not I have, many yeah. many people have. Yeah, I've oh, heard. Oh, good. I'm... <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's one in um, Kansas, and there's one in Scotland that was on the America on Earth show, but yeah. there's one right up in Ontario. Are you familiar with that one? I certainly am. In fact, it, oh, good. it's Maybe a... you can tell me about that, because I heard about that, and I haven't seen a picture of it, but I heard it's an earthen serpent mound. That's right. It's if it, In fact, it, uh, serpent mound is on which lake? Uh, Ohio. Uh, would that be Michigan? Oh, the one in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. the one in Ohio is in Peebles. Actually, uh, I used to fly in that area all the time in Columbus. I used to fly all over, and I always looked for it from the air. I could yeah. never, you know, it, you know, locate it, but it's huge. It's over 1,300 feet long. But the one in Ontario is not far from Peterborough yeah. Petroglyph Park. Yeah. I think it's within 10 miles, maybe, or 20 miles of that. I, I, I was told once that just on the other side of the lake, now Peterborough, that would be Lake Ontario, that if mm-hmm. you if you drew a line directly, it's on one of the it's on one of the ley lines that oh, it would, okay. that it connected yeah. directly yeah. with Serpent Mount in Ohio, I think. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That sounds vaguely familiar because yeah. some of these are connected by that kind of a ley, ley line, line yeah. thing. That one's kind of neat because uh, not too many people, I think, down here have heard of the one up in Ontario. You know, I think it's an earthen mound. It's mm-hmm. like in Scotland they have one too, which I had not heard of. You know, and I've been to Scotland. And I hadn't seen that or nor heard of it until Scott's show, so it's always something new. Uh, so we're finding serpentine mounds. We think we found either eight or nine of them. We've got um, infrared um, drone. Uh, we're using a brand, Actually, the gentleman was here today with his drone taking regular photographs. He took over a 1,000 of them. But he's going to use an infrared camera, and I think these things will show up quite well. When you go on a warm, warm day, you wait till evening or the next day, wait till everything cools down, the rocks cool slower than the earth, right. I guess. And you can see that about two feet. And I think we're going to be able to map some of these uh, these serpent walls, you know, get them on a map finally, you know, have without you, spending uh, money for a survey, which is very, very expensive. Have you used uh, ground-penetrating radar? Uh, yes, we have, yeah. Actually, um, the company, uh, one of the companies is right down the street from us a quarter of a mile away in the 1990s, and right. then about 10 years ago they moved downtown Salem about eight miles away, and then when I last checked out their website, they were over about 20 miles away over, I believe, in Nashville, New Hampshire. So in the 90s we were using their equipment. They left us some of their um, uh, pieces of equipment here to put in our museum, and now they're, you know, it's pretty ancient looking now because they're yeah. using, uh, they have like a, a monitor, now they use uh, laptops and everything, and they have like um you know, some of the pictures of some of the equipment, but it's, it's in 20 years they made a lot of improvements. And we did find some interesting things like fire pits. We found what might be a, a large uh, cavity in the bedrock just to the west of our site. We thought it was all solid bedrock mm-hmm. out there. And they said, no, you have, a, you have something either natural or man-made. And we've never gone down. It's about the size of one chamber we call the Chamber in Ruins, which is probably about 15 feet by maybe 10 feet, roughly. Actually, it's trapezoid in shape, too, but 
It's about the size of that, they said. And I said, well, as far as we know, this is all solid bedrock. There shouldn't be anything, you know, below here. But if you stomp on the ground, it sounds hollow. Hmm. And this guy, this gentleman that's doing this research, he's going to run the infrared camera for the first time tomorrow, we hope, if the weather cooperates. And that's one thing I'd like to look at and see if it shows up with his equipment, too, because then we'll do a shovel test bit and see if there's anything down there. Um, throughout the years, has there ever been any human remains found? Yeah, there have been some bones, um, and one of them in around 1970 was sent to a uh, museum, and they said it looked like it was human. They didn't carbon date it, and they didn't, because they didn't have DNA back then. Mm-hmm. But some of the other bones found, like in the Watch House, they found some bone in 1958, sent it to another museum, and they said, well, it looks like it was, um, um, it was uh, bison, actually. And, um, and that kind of surprised us, too, you know. And then there was, in that same, that was sent off. I don't know where that piece ended up, but we have a bone pendant, it has mm-hmm. a little drill hole that was found in the watch house, and also a stone pendant, about an inch and a half long, a very flat triangular piece of stone with a drill hole, and the bone was about an inch and a half. And I think this is something they would wear around the neck, but generally in New England, the soil is so acidic, it just eats up the bones within about two or 300 years. And our archaeologist, who was the president of New Hampshire Archaeological Society, she said maybe a thousand years you might find bones, but generally after that they dissolve back into the earth, you know, because of the acidity. Um. You know, I, there, the, I can just imagine this massive area and with still so many secrets to be brought forward. What are some of the, some of the reaction of, of, the, of the students that, that go through your site, as well as the reaction of, of adults when they realize the magnitude of the site and then the significance of this site? Oh, it's been pretty good. Um, you know, it seems like uh, people... Um, Although the schools aren't pushing history perhaps as much, mm-hmm. people are seeing some of this on TV, some of the History Channel shows, Discovery, that kind of thing, on radio shows and on the Internet. Um, they come down, and we're getting a lot of good com- uh, comments by people, you know, like, wow, that's pretty fascinating, that's very interesting kind of thing. In fact, we got a five-star thing the other day from somebody saying, you know, incredible, very interesting. So it's really kind of nice to see that. You know, we put a lot of time and effort into this site for 60 years, but it's nice that people kind of appreciate, you know, this site. And we tell them that there, this isn't the only site. There are sites all over the landscape. Some are protected, some are not protected. But the students also are interested because we talk about geology, astronomy, mm-hmm. archaeoastronomy, you know, the history, prehistory. We talk a little bit about epigraphy, ancient inscriptions, you know, that kind of thing. And um, they seem to be interested in that, you know, and they can walk around the site. They can see it. They can kind of touch it. Um, and we have an audio tour for the students, you know, and we get pretty good responses from the teachers, too. So uh, I think it's quite educational, you know. So we start, we start back with the glacial period, and then we work our way to the present day, and then we talk about some of the modern technology that they're using today, you know. Sure. Um, so it's pretty good, yeah, and I think, I think the technology is going to help to prove these sites eventually. Uh, you know, that Worldview 3 satellite they used for that other site up in Canada for that Viking site mm-hmm. last year, and, you know, this thing called o- OSL, optically stimulated luminescence, if they, can prove, if they can really prove that technique, it's basically they take a core of Earth next to a wall, let's say, like a wall, either a building wall or just a wall, and you get down near the bottom of it, and you take that soil, send it to a laboratory, and they can tell you the last time that soil saw the light of day. So it's kind of a neat technique. You've got to make sure there's no disturbance to the soil. Nobody's turned the soil over, or a rodent has caused damage, or roots. So there's a lot of ifs and maybes, but if you can get a piece of soil down below, and you, you jam a tube, you, uh, you actually put a tube, and you actually, a core, you know, a coring tool, and you mm-hmm. take that sample. And you've got to take a couple samples, too. You have to take several, and I think it's over $1,000 per per sample. Wow. So it, you have to have some money ready to do that. And they did a chamber in Massachusetts called the Upton Chamber, and that dated, and, I, I, and it was the entrance. And they think that the entrance in that soil might be a little bit later. The structure still could be older than this, so they want to do some right on the structure itself. But the medium date came out, I think, around 1400, uh, 14 something, just before Columbus. So it wasn't made 200 years ago as all the authorities said, oh, it's built 150, 200, maybe 250 years ago by our forefathers. It's not ancient. But it might actually predate Columbus. So Interesting. It's kind of a neat technique. You know, they, a lot of this uh, new stuff's pretty neat. Dennis, stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our final break. Exonation. Dennis Stone is our very special guest, and he is, uh, you're the owner, right? Yep, yep. It's my dad and now myself. And, uh, family, it is a family business, yep. All right. He is the owner. Yep. 
of America Stonehenge, www.stonehengeusa.com. And Dennis and I will be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exome from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Now, if you'd like to uh, send me an email with any suggestions, guest comments, or if you, there's a certain guest you'd like us to bring on, send me your emails, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. Once again, for more information on America Stonehenge, stonehengeusa.com. Hi everyone, Rob McConnell here, and I wanted to spend a moment on internet streaming. Everybody has heard about internet streaming, but not many know much about it. Did you know the internet streams just about everything? Movies. From new releases to old classics. TV shows. Almost every show, every episode, and much more. But the question has always been, how do you do it? Well now, thanks to the folks at 123 Ready TV, I have the answer for you. They have developed a simple program app, 123 Ready TV, that you install on your Windows PC, Android smartphone, or Android tablet that can have you streaming like a pro in less than five minutes. You truly won't believe how much is available or how easy it is to do until you try. And for a one-time cost of only $19.99, this product is a real winner. To learn more about 123 Ready TV, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. There's a legend shared by many indigenous cultures of a time when the nations were cast to the four corners of the world. Each nation was given a body of sacred knowledge that held a different portion of the truth to preserve. True reality could not be known until all the nations reunited, combining the information. If a single one was missing, the world could not be reborn and darkness would prevail. The Science of Magic Radio is dedicated to reuniting the sacred knowledge. With the understanding, none of us has all the answers, but together we can open new perceptions and possibilities. Through our combined vision, the world can be reborn into a place where darkness no longer prevails. 
Join me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the Science of Magic daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, or visit us at thescienceofmagic.net. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Dennis Stone is our guest, and he is the owner, with his family, of America's Stonehenge. Their website is www.stonehengeusa.com. Dennis, uh, during the commercial break, you, you mentioned two things that you'd like to share with our audience that I just found were fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah, Rob, we've, uh, we talked about the serpentine wells as a fairly new find, and at the same time, we've actually been finding uh, a lot of these large quarried stones. Um, when we did a uh, shovel test pit study back in the 1990s, it took about six years. We did about one STP or shovel test pit. It's a 50-centimeter uh, square hole, basically. Mm-hmm. And you go down to preoccupational level like bedrock or glacial soil, and you stop, you record all the geological and all the archaeological data. And we, we had that done by that, that person there uh, from the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. So it took her a couple of years. And one of the things she said was the hilltop is probably bare 4,000 years ago. It's a pretty bare hill, probably 75% bedrock. 25% covered with earth, you know, brush and some trees, but it was pretty open. And there's a lot of exposed bedrock still today, but mostly, you know, it's covered with earth. And at the time these people built the site, they were able to go out and look at the bedrock and choose certain areas to actually quarry. Hmm. And what they did is they got worked a fissure or crack in the bedrock, and they were able to remove these stones, some of these way up to 14. Uh, I think the biggest roof slab we have is almost 30,000 pounds. Wow. So, and they knew how to do this. Um, they were, you know, they were, we're not sure how they did it, but they knew how to do it. And they knew how to get the size stone they wanted. They knew how not to fracture or ruin the stone as they were extracting it. But they would prop it up with a stone underneath it. And then they would start hammering it with uh, hammer stones and throwing stones. It's called percussion flaking, just like making an arrowhead, but on a multi-ton scale. And um, we first found the first one in 1982. It was one of our workers here. And she was sitting, actually sitting on it during a picnic, during break. And she found it all propped up, and the edge of it looked like it was all serrated, like somebody had been bashing it, you know, with a stone. And she brought it to the attention of one of our researchers. Uh, he had a couple doctorates, and he told our staff, look for a stone that's propped up with another stone, perhaps, and look at the edge of it and see if it looks like it's serrated, you know, it's been struck with another stone tool. And she saw that and showed it to him, and that became an excavation during 1983. And they found a couple more after that. We knew maybe of about 10. But in the last two years, again, we've found probably 20 more all over the landscape, about some of them a 1,000 feet from the main site. Hmm. And it kind of dawned on us that, they actually were still building the site when they walked away from it. They had grander plants or something bigger up there, but it was all abandoned. And so the last one I found was about maybe about a month and a half ago, and I took a picture on my camera and sent it to everybody. Go, I found another one, uh, and that was a little bit smaller. That one's probably about six feet by four feet. But uh, they, we keep finding these things all over the landscape. And one other piece of inf- thing we found up there, too, was the measurements, you know, who, when they built the site, what unit of measure did they use to build the walls mm-hmm. uh, for the lengths and the heights and the widths and all of that? And in the 1930s, when the first research went on, uh, there's a gentleman named Mr. Goodwin, and he hired a gentleman, and he was an insurance millionaire from Hartford, Connecticut. He wrote several books. He was an antiquarian, you know. Uh, he, he, uh, he was interested in Native American mounds. He was interested where uh, Leif Erikson landed, and he wrote several books about this. And when he saw our site in 1936, he was like, wow, I think this is a Viking settlement. But as he uncovered it, he realized it did not look like a Viking settlement. It's all built out of stone, no sod houses like the Vikings would have built. But he thought it was an Irish Calding Monk monastery. And he hired a gentleman from MIT to kind of oversee this project. And he was an engineer, and he went out measuring the site. He did plan views and profile views of the site, and what he said about 80 years, almost 80 years ago, was I don't know what unit of measure they used to build the site. It doesn't. It's not inches. It's not feet. It's not yards. Hmm. It's not rods. It says I don't know what they used. But uh, in the years since then, uh, megalithic yard has been found by Dr. Alexander Tom in Scotland. He's very famous. He passed away about 30 years ago. I think 1985. We met him though. We met him and his son, Dr. Alexander Tom, and they surveyed sites all over the landscape in Europe, and they found this megalithic unit. It's 32 inches, 0.64. And when we looked at you, we looked at that in the 1970s, we found a couple of these, you know, uh, measurements on our site, but we never really pursued it. We said, gee, maybe they used that here. But recently we were measuring the groove on the table, and we thought it was a rectangle. And uh, we went up there and measured it, and it comes out to 
five megalithic inches wide at the bottom. The length of the rectangular groove is two megalithic yards, and the top is 1.25. The width of the table is two and a half megalithic yards, and the top near the top of the bell shape, it's uh, I think it's two, and it's one one megalithic high above uh, above the bedrock. And then we started measuring the Oracle Chamber, the Chamber in Ruins, and some of these other structures. But one thing we found was that that was a trapezoidal shape, and when we measured the next structure, the Chamber in Ruins, we found that was trapezoidal shape. Hmm. And in my readings recently, I found that in, in England, a number of the structures over there are trapezoidal in shape. So it could be a coincidence, but the megalithic yard doesn't seem to be a coincidence. It seems to be something that they were using here, and there's a couple other sites in New England they found the same measurement. Uh, in South America, uh, my... One of the gentlemen is kind of a publicist for me. He sent me some information, and they used 83 centimeters they've been finding down there as a measuring, uh, kind of like a measurement they found down there. And in, in Mexico, Tihuacan, and then in uh, Poverty Point, Louisiana, they're finding these 83. And I said, gee, what is 83 centimeters? And I converted it, and it comes out to 32.64. It's a megalithic yard. So that's something that we have to look at, these measuring systems. You know, That might be part of the proof of who built the site. It's over in Europe, and this measurement, we think, is over here also. Over the years, uh, people have reported strange occurrences at <clears throat> other megalithic sites. For example, uh, very close to Stonehenge crop circles and other megalithic sites, they have uh, reported seeing strange anomalies in the sky. Other people report strange feelings when walking through the megalithic sites. Have you been privy to any of this uh, information from anyone who's visited America's Stonehenge? Yeah, we have a couple of visitors uh, that have been coming up in the last couple of weeks. They bought, uh, they bought a uh, year of membership, as a matter of fact. They're coming up here, and, they, and they're going out there. I think they're doing dowsing. They mm-hmm. have uh, pendulums, and they've been yeah. going up there finding energy and all this kind of thing. And they say they've actually been in communication with some of the ancient ones and Actually, they, they seem very sincere, you know, they seem like very nice people, but over the years we've had people like Hans Holzer. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, he's been to the site, and he actually uh, was here uh, doing the uh, Lennon Nimoy uh, in search of. He actually directed that back in 76, but he had been here a couple of years earlier that, and he brought in Betty, uh, Betty Hill, yes. you know, of the Bonnie and Betty Hill mm-hmm. with the UFO. And my mom actually became a friend of Betty's after that time, you know. So, uh, But we've had different psychics. I think um, he brought up, I'm trying to think, it was a very... Not, uh, not Sybil uh, Lika. Oh, there was actually a famous psychic, I think, that Hans Holter brought with him, but we're talking, I think, around 1974. Yeah. And then he came two years later to do that Lennon Nimoy, you know, series, The In Search Of, you know, which is kind of, he actually directed that, I guess, or uh, wrote the script. But, yeah, people have reported, we usually have, like, um, a ghost hunt in the fall, and people bring up equipment, they see orbs. Uh, they've done sound recordings with voices, you know, and... We've had uh, Jeff Belanger. Um, he's a writer for that Ghost Adventure. I, I know Jeff very Jeff? well. He's a good friend. Oh, good. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, and actually, when you talk to him, you probably can find more about that aspect of the site with Jeff because he's been here several times, and he actually brought up one of the gentlemen that's on that TV series, and I was introduced with him, but they were kind of in a hurry that day, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him too long about, you know, about the site and what they felt, any, you know, any mm-hmm. readings or anything like that. So it's been an interest to us. How about you and your? How about you and your family? <laughs> How about you and oh, your I'm family? Sorry? How about you and your family? Have you and your family uh, experienced anything weird, strange, uh, bizarre? Or yeah, the I, I, yeah, I hate to talk about that because my son kind of saw some things when he was younger up there, you know, like the shake shift or that kind mm-hmm. of thing, but he doesn't like to talk about it. Okay. So I, I can only mention that. that he saw something. He was pretty young at the time, and my wife goes, well, that's really interesting. And he did, you know, and then he had a couple people that were, uh, one gentleman from the University of Lowell that came up quite often, and he was really into that, and he thought my son might be a little sensitive to that kind of stuff. But my son got more interested in other types of things like racing cars and stuff like that. He does rally racing and all that oh, really? stuff. He's an engineer. Cool. But, I, you know, I think when he was younger, you know, he was saying some things about that. Not me so much, you know, but my, my, my son. And my wife said she's seen some things up there, too, but she goes, I don't want to talk about it. So that's okay. <laughs> so, so tell me, do you get more families to your location or do you get more male researchers, female researchers, or you just get a total mix? So we get a real mix, yeah. We get people interested in astrology, uh, you know, archaeology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get families coming up. We have the alpacas here. We have the kids' gemstone dig right now. And then when the school groups come in, we do an archaeological dig with them. And that's just about a 45-minute introduction. And we actually show them the tools, and we actually let them dig. But, yeah, I say families. And uh, But there are some researchers coming up. It's really nice to start to see people interested in this site. We certainly could use the help. 
Um, only about one acre out of 110 acres have, has been excavated. Wow. And because excavation by itself kind of is destructive, because once you dig up a thing, you know, yeah. the future archaeologists say, gee, I wish you had left it for us so we could get more information out of it. So, you know, it's kind of a, a balancing act, you know, what you can dig. But we're not even close to that. We, but the main site has got most of the... Uh, archaeological digging over the last eight years. That's a one-acre area where most of the chambers are located. And there are chain-link fences around it today put up by Mr. Goodwin in the 19th, 80 years ago. It's still in great shape. He put it there to protect the site. But I tell people now, just kind of pretend the fence isn't there. You can see the site just goes out, all these walls all around here are all part of this. And, you know, you get the serpentine walls, and yeah. you have all these astronomical alignments, you know. And there's a couple chambers out there, too, you know. So, um, in fact, my son, he thinks he found a uh, chamber on the north alignment. If you look, it looks like a rectangular-shaped pattern of walls. And if you look 100 feet away, there's a big, gigantic slab. I think they were in the process of building this structure, and they never put the roof slab. They never dragged it the last 100 feet. It was a quarried stone, and it's just sitting on the ridge of, we call it the north cliff. You know, mm-hmm. it's a real pretty area. It's up real high. So that's another thing we found, you know, in the last couple of years, too. Hey, we'll Dennis. have to have that looked at. Dennis, I hate to say this, my friend, but the last time you were on, time just flew right by. You're back with us today. Time flew right by. I want to thank you so much for, I know you're a busy man. I know that your family is very busy. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And like I said to you uh, off air, anything comes up, please let us know. We'll get you right back on. Well, thank you so much, Rob, and thank you, listeners, and thank everybody there at your radio uh, show for uh, having me on this evening. And, I and just, enjoyed it. And just one quick comment. I know that you're, uh, you're a pilot. Be safe, my friend. Oh, thank you. Actually, I'll let you know. I just retired. Oh, good for you. <laughs> 35 Den- years. I'm retired now. So well, thank you so much for that, though. I Dennis, appreciate it. Dennis, take care of yourself. Look forward to the next time you join us back here in the X-Zone. Bye, Rob. Thank you. So long, sir. Thank Dennis you. Stone has been my guest, X-Zone Nation, and uh, we'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue from our broadcast center. Where? Right here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Don't go away.